Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's Toby Lichtig. I'm the fiction editor of the TLS. This is a special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, in which I talk to Jeff Dyer at the Hay Festival Peru about his life of pilgrimage junkets and fruitful disappointment and tonight i have the very great honor of introducing jeff dyer um jeff is the author of four novels several collections of essays and travel writing and various genre defying books whose subject include uh but are not limited to photography jazz the first world war dh lawrence mm-hmm. the director andre tarkovsky uh, and daily life aboard an american aircraft carrier it was an aircraft carrier wasn't it? yes sir his most recent book, White Sands, which is available uh, in Spanish translation as uh, Arenas Blancas, was published last year. And his new book, entitled The Street Philosophy of Gary Winogrand, uh, will be available in 2018. And, and, and I'd actually like to talk a little bit about that book later on, because I have no idea uh, what it might be about, apart from Gary Winogrand, who's someone I haven't heard of. Um, I don't know if anyone here has. I think we should start off by talking about White Sands. Mm. It's a collection of I guess, journalism, essays, a little bit of fiction thrown in. In that sense, it's quite characteristic of your work in general. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about how it came together? Yeah. About 15 years ago, I published a a book of sort of travel pieces called Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It. And that was about my experiences in various places. Oh, Libya, Detroit, Rome, Cambodia... Laos, this kind of stuff. And anyway, time went by. I visited more places and uh, wrote things and started to realize, oh, there's enough for sort of more yoga, yoga, yoga too or something. And um, then as I looked at what was there, I found that um, two things. One, there wasn't quite enough for a book, but there were certainly uh, certain uh, unifying themes running through these pieces, which was surprising because I hadn't written them with any idea that they might form a coherent whole. Um, And so when I became aware of that and the need to maybe write two or three new pieces, um, that fitted in really well with where I just moved to California at the time. And there were a couple of places that I was, things that I was interested in writing about. And so I it, was, it meant I could write about these places, but with that thematic sort of back, backdrop, really, knowing, you know, what I was going to these places for, uh, and with a nice sense as well that the, this book about sort of journeys and travels that I'd made should end with this, you know, journey that I'd spent so many years of my life looking forward to making actually to moving to to california yes i think i think you say somewhere in the book that you to anyone who had listened to you from from about 2000 you'd been saying you wanted to end your days in, in california and <laughs> so and so then yeah way. then somebody a californian corrected me in a very californian way saying no no you don't end your days here you begin them you begin them and have you begun them <laughs> uh yeah i i did i began them rather late in life though um and uh, so that's what was going on with that. But it's funny, you know, I'm not here to, to quarrel with you, Toby, although the audience always love a, a quarrel. We, we can have a fight, I don't <laughs> mind. Um, but yeah, the, it, almost inevitably, the book was described as a collection of, you know, travel pieces or whatever. And, you know, I can't deny that in a way, in that by the time the book was published, once we told serial rights in Britain and America, every 
bit of it had previously been published in a magazine. But although I have no, absolutely no principled objection to a ragbag, you know, collection of journalistic pieces, in fact, I've published a couple of those, this, I really felt, had a sort of uh, uh, a thematic and narrative unity in a way that um, the idea of a collection I mean, doesn't, doesn't have to have. So I really, th I really felt it was a, a proper book in its, in, its, in its own right, in spite of the fact that it had all previously been, been published. Um, as much as I'd love to disagree with you, um, I, I think that's correct. Um, <laughs> and and there, you know, there, there are some very strong thematic strands that run through you know, each of the, each of the uh, essays in it. And I guess we should talk a lot about those because that's really yeah. important. One of the most important for me anyway was this idea of pilgrimage. Yeah, um, yeah. and the sacred spaces around that. They're two slightly different things. Um, uh, I just wondered if you could talk about that and, and those a yeah, little bit. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, the idea of pilgrimage, I think, is so... Uh, uh, it's some, I, I've always liked making pilgrimages, well, it, but, but, you know, a secular pilgrimage, pilgrimage, of course. And, you know, this brings up another of the themes, actually, which is disappointment, I sort of say at one point in the book, that it's almost unheard of, I think, for a Muslim to, to, to do the Hajj, to make the pilgrimage to Mecca, and say, yeah, you know what, it was disappointing. Uh, whereas the secular pilgrimage is, has a massive potential for, for disappointment built into it. And, you know, I'm so conscious of that, but also conscious of the way that, in spite of a long history of disappointment, my appetite to go on these things remains undiminished. Uh, particularly, a particularly disappointing form of pilgrimage is visiting where a writer has lived. Right. And you try, to, you go to the place and you try to sort of, you know, I mean, I've done this so much. And tap, I've, tap into the aura of the writer somehow. And, yes, but. exactly. And however that writer's place has been either preserved or, you know, if it's been turned into a museum, then the, the vibe is killed. It's just fatal. Uh, a museum always becomes a mausoleum in that in that way, um, and you know it. So I, I was interested in that as well. And I'm always, you know, you can't fake it. You can't sort of claim, yeah, I'm feeling the the D. H. Lawrence vibes or whatever it is when you're not. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm English, so you understand disappointment. Yeah, I'd had a. I feel like I'd, I'd had a lifetime of, of it by the you know by the time of by I was twelve and my you know my. I can remember it quite clearly. But yeah, when I was about 12, this band that I loved so much, Hawkwind, mm. psychedelic rock band, they, played, they were playing a, a free festival in my hometown of Cheltenham. And it poured with rain, so much, it rained so much they just didn't turn up. And that was so consistent with picnics that had been rained off. So by, so by 12, I'd had this sort of consummation of, of, of disappointment already. Yeah, I think you're, the, the British festival experience, I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter what kind of festival you're going to be. If you've got an outdoor element, then, yeah, you're, you have disappointment built in, certainly. Um, have you ever reported from a, from a festival? Have you, have you, have you written uh, about music festivals? Yeah, I mean, in, a, in my low, normal low way of writing journalism, I, as a way of getting a free ticket to the festival. And so one of the nice things, you see, so I'd written these various uh, pieces... But then I also wanted the opposite. I, didn't, I certainly don't want to be one of these British writers. Of, and there's a great tradition where you basically go around the world just being sardonic or sarcastic. So I didn't just want to strike that note of, oh, here's more disappointment. And so in the book, I record quite a lot of places where you know, I, I'm going there, not exactly for a pilgrimage where a writer has lived, but you know, these uh, things that you know, I was really drawn to... Um, uh, these land art projects in the American West, which were just sort of stunning. And it seemed to me that many of those had a very interesting uh, function in that they offered us what many sacred sites had, had, had done in the past, you know, the great, you know, the great sites of Angkor Wat or whatever, but, you know, completely secular. Um, and those were profound experiences so I'd, I'd written about those. And then when it came to the end of the book, I really was very keen on, on visiting the house where uh, Theodore Adorno lived in, in Los Angeles. 
And that's very different. That's the opposite to a place which has been preserved as any sort of shrine, let's say, because it's Los Angeles, the paradigmatic city without a past. And, you know, there it is, just this house without any kind... You know, in London, every, every other house has a blue plaque mm. saying X lived here, Y lived here, because the burden of history is so great. You know, although there was, no, there was no Adorno vibe at all, there was something vibrationally satisfying about that because it really brought out just the ludicrousness of the, or the, the comedy of the way that Adorno, along with all of these, so many of these other heavyweight, serious German intellectuals fled Nazism uh, and all ended up within, uh, you know, living within about five miles of each other in sort of, you know, uh, in, in West Los Angeles. So they're all there. Horkheimer, uh, Adorno, Brecht. Um, uh, and then we have, of course, Schoenberg. And, you know, rather brilliantly, Schoenberg's wife, when the guided tours of the stars' houses would go, you know, the, you'd, you'd, she, you'd, she'd see the, the, the bus going by and... You know, the, the guide would say, this is where Shirley Temple lives. And she'd be sort of on her husband's behalf. Why don't they mention Arnold Schoenberg? <laughs> so I just liked the, the kind of... And I think you, you mentioned that some of these characters actually quite embraced the whole Tinseltown thing and, and some really, really didn't. Yes, indeed. I mean, Schoenberg certainly uh, did. I mean, he really, he really, really took to it. Um, and, I mean, there's lots of paradoxes going on here. I mean, these people... These German, you know, atonal composers who really despised capitalism and Hollywood because it was vulgar, it was the worst kind of capitalism providing stupid entertainment which, just, which, which was a way of oppressing the masses. But of course, at the same time, you know, there was money to be made from, you know, and, um, you know, it's, as you know, you know, in some ways, a uh, film became the last kind of... Um, a source of patronage for kind of, you know, uh, orchestral music in a way. And, uh, uh, and they were, you know, of course, they wanted to get their, their, their snouts in the trough, as it were. And also, um, you know, I, I forgot the most important of all, Thomas Mann was living there. And he, he got fed up in the end, didn't he? Yes, yeah. he, he, yeah. He, he did. Um, but he had a, I mean, and, and then Adorno served as, Thomas Mann's musical advisor on, on Dr. Faustus. Anyway, the point is, there's all this stuff going on in the lovely, you know, the gorgeous, uh, endlessly sunny perfection of, uh, of the Western United States, while, you know, back in Europe, you know, the, the, you know this Armageddon at the, at the heart of the century is, is taking place. It wasn't such a... I mean, it's... it's I'm sort of talking too much in a way but you know so I live in I live there now in in uh, in Los Angeles and when there are big political events going on in Europe I feel distanced from them um, even though there's the internet and all of this sort of stuff and you think when you know when these these people who had a deep vested interest in in the, what Germany would become I sort of of course they were better off there than being killed in, in Germany, of course. And you could say, well, they had a luxury, you know, they're just having a great time. But that kind of emotional agony they were going through, I think, just of, of sort of being away from where, from this, you know, the real inferno at the heart of the century, perhaps less of a problem for Thomas Mann because he had this kind of belief that, you know, he was still in Germany in the sense that he always said, you know, wherever my desk is, that is Germany. <laughs> how was it they, that they all ended up in L.A. rather than yeah. New York? Or how, do you know how that happened? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it was a, a nearly most of them went to New York first of all, uh, and then I think Horkheimer went west and you know got some money and uh, uh, and you know then he said to Adorno, "Come and uh, <laughs> come here." And then you know uh, just a sort of weird combination of, of different things but there was there, there was some kind of income for for them there it, it can be for me anyway it can be very strange thinking of these incredibly austere sounding figures as you know normal human beings who have friends you know who follow their friends places have a social life 
obviously a desire to earn money. And I guess, you know, that, that, that drove them as much as, as anything or as anyone. Yes, that, that's right. And, you know, they were, uh, they were endlessly, incredibly uh, productive yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they, they, you know they, 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 at various stages, most of them uh, go, go back to, 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 to Germany. Um, so let, let's row back a little bit to, to what yeah. you were saying before. So there was there's disappointment and there's oh, yeah. tran- transcendence, or you know, kind oh, of. Yes. The, yeah. um, and I think it, for those who, I mean, how many people here have read uh, Jeff's latest book? Okay, so <laughs> sorry for the repetition, but I think it might be interesting to, to come up with a couple of concrete examples yeah. of that. So that what I'll choose, but you, you can choose something else if you prefer. I was, gonna, I was thinking of the Goga, the, the opening one. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's your kind of disappointment. And then I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit after that about the, um, the lightning field, because that seemed to me yeah. the, 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 the essay in which you're most excited by your, your, your pilgrimage. Yeah. I mean, so I went to Tahiti because of Gauguin. Um, and in fact, the book was originally going to be called after the Gauguin painting, God, I've, I mean, this is why the book didn't have the title that I was going to have, because I can never remember it so long. You know that <laughs> painting called, Where Are We From? What Are We Doing? Where Are We Going? And I kept insisting with my publisher, that is the title. And they said, it's a stupid title. Nobody will remember it. And anyway, I changed my mind at the end. So I went to Tahiti, just because I wanted to, I didn't just want to see Tahiti. I wanted to, to, to inhabit a Gauguin painting. And of course, that proved to be impossible. I mean, now Tahiti is just this sort of rather used up place on the sort of on the sort of cruise ship itinerary uh but i ended up being very glad i went even though um gogan wise it, re- it it didn't deliver anything but it became there were things you know incidental things there that made the trip wor- worthwhile i'll just mention another disappointing thing you know we went to uh, uh to the far reaches of of, of norway to experience the Northern Lights, uh, which we didn't manage uh, to to see. I'll mention another one, actually. There's an account of, um, which wasn't disappointing at all. We were, the first time we met was in Shanghai, and we had a nice time. And then I went to Beijing, and of course I was really keen to see the Forbidden City. It's one of the wonders of the world. It lives up to its reputation. It's not disappointing at all. But, you know, who wants to read, in a sense, something about the, Forbidden City itself. So I found that what just various things there meant that I could use it not as a backdrop to a, to a story taking place, but that the Forbidden City, in a metaphorical way, in a very obvious metaphorical way, becomes a kind of play, this thing that causes a kind of drama to happen. It's a kind of romance story in a way. And I think you use the word transcendence, but in a sense, I, mean, I, I sort of never know what transcendence is I much prefer the opposite of just the idea of being completely in the moment you know really rooted in the here and now well, um, and there's, a, there's almost a kind of spirituality to that or a, I mean maybe sp- spiritual is the wrong word but there's a kind of a, a beyondness to even being in the moment perhaps yeah 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 I, th- I think that's absolutely right and and then something else str- I mean um, I mean there was various things going on uh, in in this story and yeah, so I, I was really, I just felt so, I think that this thing when you're traveling, you know, there are certain, you'll have certain moments where you'll just think, yes, I'm so glad that I did, I'm so glad I came here. My, in a way, my whole life has been worthwhile because I'm having this moment. And this is a bit of a detour. And typically now what young people do, of course, when you're having these moments, you take photographs with your phone and, you know, I've, I'm too old for that. And the photographs, it seems to me, just don't capture the moment. But something odd happened. There was this guy my age there who was a serious photographer. And he took some photographs of this lovely, magical, warm evening. Magical in so many ways. It was really, really warm. It was incredibly unpolluted. It was the least polluted night in Beijing's history of the last 30 years or something. It was just wonderful. And his pictures, his photographs just captured this magic, you know, which is so difficult to do. Anyway, so there we were in the moment with the documentary evidence of the photograph to to back it up. And I emphasize that thing of being in the moment rather than the transcendental so much as a way of building up to this place called the the lightning field. And I guess, I don't want to bore you with it, but 
How many people have been to or know what the lightning field is? Um, I'd I'd never heard of it until I read your book either. Okay. So it's a place in uh, New Mexico designed by Walter de Maria in the high desert. And the idea is what he did is he planted these, um, this, uh, these number of steel poles, which typically are about probably the height of this ceiling. Um, and uh, they're separated from each other by about, let's say, 15 feet. And they occupy a precise area of a mile by a kilometer in the middle of the high desert. And the idea is that they attract lightning. And you arrive there, and you can't just turn up there and have a quick look for two minutes and then go, which is a very good thing because when you first arrive, um, the, the deal is you, six people can, you have to stay the night there. Six people, you stay in this little hut. So it's only six people. You arrive, and when you arrive, you're so disappointed because there's just nothing to see because it's two o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is so bright, the poles are virtually invisible. So if you did just turn up in your car, you'd think, oh, fuck this, I'm going to go, you know. But actually being obliged to stay there means this incredible experience of a place unfolds over time as the poles become visible with the changing of the light. And then you just find yourself in the grips of this, uh, you know, a kind of secular religious experience. And it's just absolutely wonderful. But you really are you're both locked into the moment and you're all the time thinking, you know, what is, you know, what is going on? You're really, you're so, just as they're trying to concentrate the uh, potential of lightning into this area of a mile by a kilometre, they're really concentrating your experience on, on, on being there. Uh, I should add that it's, its track record as a place able to... Uh, attract lightning is very poor. <laughs> but you, you don't need to see lightning in order no, to... No, you, you certainly don't. So sort of unlike when you went to see the Northern Lights and didn't see the Northern Lights were very disappointed, this is a kind of different... <laughs> very, very... A different failure to see light. Very vulgar to go to the lightning field thinking there might be lightning. Right, OK. <laughs> um, and at night, it's just wonderful. You've got these, ste- you know, these wonderful steel poles. You're in the middle of nowhere, these incredible, you know, that sort of high desert... Uh, sky with just incredible stars, and you know that uh, that really is that's yeah it's a it's a uh, it's a wonderful experience. And what was interesting to it, and people go there. Typically, they hear of it, and uh, people interested in art. Whereas it seemed to me it was much more interest. It's okay, you know, of course, it's okay to see it in that sort of discourse. But it seemed to me much more interesting to see it more in the context of the way that people throughout history have marked places in the landscape. You know, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we stumbled on this place not knowing it was this artwork by Walter de Maria, but but just stumbled on here, you know, 2,000 years from now when these poles will, you know, certainly still be there, even if we're not, and to try to make sense of what it is in the same way now that we, all these thousands of years later, try to make sense of what happened at Stonehenge or, or why Angkor Wat was designed as it was. I think, I, think you, I, I think it's your phrase, you refer to these accumulated comings and goings. Is that, that is you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this sense that sites are invested with significance purely because people have visited them over, over such a long time. Well, not and purely because of that, I think, Toby. And as a way of doing this, I'm going to do that thing of... I'm going to quote myself, and I'll explain what's, what's going on. So this is... One, don't worry, it's not a long reading. This is just a bit where I actually try to explain why certain places maybe have a power and why I think there's more to it than just people trampling over, it, over a place endlessly. So this is just a short explanation of places. Maybe because of some fluke of geomorphology, certain places in a landscape develop a special quality. A slight indentation becomes moist. A river runs through it. This becomes a fertility site devoted to the goddess, the earth mother. To mark the place, people arrange a few stones in the symbolic shape of a phallus or a vagina so that its power is increased enclosed, harnessed. A childless couple go there 
and mutter a few pleasantries, and that very night the wife conceives. News of this miracle spreads. People travel from afar, hoping for a similar result, believing that coming here will bring their shaming sterility to an end. And it works, up to a point. Then it doesn't. The explanation is obvious. During a period of drought, the river has dried up. But lacking any knowledge of meteorology, the people who live nearby, who have by now become dependent on the business generated by pilgrims, ask the priests, who are also dependent on the pilgrim trade, what they are to do. They decide that the only way forward is to moisten up the earth goddess with the blood of a few virgins or adolescent males. So they do that. And this previously nice place acquires an atrocious dimension, which, far from cancelling out its sacred status, enhances it. Or maybe they enlarge the simple stone shrine and build something larger along the lines of Angkor Wat or Salisbury Cathedral. Then, after an invasion or two, everyone forgets what it was for and the place falls into disuse and ruin. But the accumulated effect of all these comings and goings, lingers and seeps down into the foundations. By falling into ruin, its primal circuitry is laid bare. Even when there are just a few stones left and no one knows what went on here, the place retains what D.H. Lawrence in an essay on Taos Pueblo calls a kind of nodality. So I guess the point that I was making is that it's, it's not just some sort of arbitrary place, that it begins with some geomorphological feature, some specialness in the landscape, and then it, you know, and then it, it builds from there. But then even, even if the knowledge itself has been forgotten of why it was once significant, it's, it, it kind of, there's an accumulated, well, there's an accumulation of significance. It, it, indeed, and crucially, I mean, I talked there about the, the way that it sort of seeps into the foundations, and if you, if you visit Varanasi in, in India, you know, which is a place where it's the absolute epicenter of Hinduism, as you know. You go there and, you know, however, however secular you are, uh, as I am, you know, I don't have any religious belief at all, I really believe that the fact that Hinduism has been practiced there has seeped into every molecule of every building so that every temple there hums with some sort of spirit of, you know, uh, you know, God, pick, you know, pick your pick your God from the Hindu pantheon. Yeah, it's it's it. You can see it's it's alive. If you had some sort of Geiger counter, and you go to a place like Varanasi or Stoke, you know, it starts clicking. There's a there's a uh, there's a harnessed power there. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where else would you say you've been on your, on your many travels that's, that's had that kind of Varanasi power? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I've never... Varanasi is the place where the Geiger counter just couldn't even... It just broke, you know, it just went <laughs> straight into the red and, you know, it just crashed because the power was so great. Uh, and we should say that you've, you've written a book partly set in Varanasi, oh, yes. uh, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, um, yeah. which deals with that very beautifully. That's right. Um, oh, a number of beautiful B- Buddhist temples in, in Thailand, uh, other Buddhist temples in, in Laos. Um, uh, uh, and what a shame, though, that our own great place, Stonehenge, has been so 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 robbed of its power by the very attempts they've made to preserve it. I mean, it's, it's still got a massive road running very near it, which is like yeah, traffic. You know, it's things. a real, you know, their latest thing is sort of exit through the gift shop. Uh, and it's, when you look at those paintings, say, by Turner, or you read, uh, you read the account in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, of the, you know, you, 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 you feel it's, it's cosmic power then, but it, it's really, it doesn't seem to have it anymore. Um, anyway, and you know, I've not been to Machu Picchu, but uh, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if that didn't have some, uh, some, some, some significant uh, power. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about style now, I mean, your, your, your approach to writing in general. So, I mean, we mentioned earlier that this is a, well, it's not a collection, but it's an assemblage of a bit of fiction, a bit of travel writing. The boundaries are very deliberately blurred, and that's something you've I guess, done for a very long time, if not forever. Um, yes, yeah, so you're making me sound like an ancient monument there, Toby. <laughs> a very short forever, but a forever nonetheless. We all have a forever. Um, I'm not going to ask you anything as naff as whether you consider yourself to be a novelist or a travel writer or whatever, but do, how, how do you approach the way in which you tell stories? I mean, do you, do you find that you just naturally start moving into a fictive mode or you, do you start with one idea and that turns into a novel or is it... How well, yeah. Basically, how how do you how do you approach writing yeah. in that sense? Well, not uh, uh, I don't have much of a capacity for storytelling. In fact, a lot of the other stuff is a way of compensating for my basic lack of page turnability. I, I, I think, um, but um, you know, uh, I feel that, uh, and so, so one of the things that has to compensate quite a lot has to be going on stylistically uh i think and i guess as i've got older so i've become much more uh much keener on this idea of trying to be uh sort of uh funny and serious at the same at the same time i think i i, I heard something when you were talking about this and you're talking about adorno with respect to this book and how he uses a dialectic you know approach with all his his writing and how you have a sort of a, a dialectic yourself, which is the kind of combination of the serious and the humorous. And I wonder if you'd like to say a bit more about oh, that. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> and there's a there's a there's a misattribution in the book. I thought it was David Sedaris who pointed out that the opposite of serious, sorry, the opposite of funny is not serious. The opposite of funny is not funny. <laughs> uh, it's actually G.K. Chesterton um, who said it, and I think that's so right. And what I've um, I mean, so I like the, so I really, really like the idea that one is making, you know, that something is, you know, it's, well, uh, that you're coming up with clever things while being funny as well, and sort of flickering back and forth between the two, and of course, crucially, never being po-faced, and I think this is something that's gradually become more, ev- I think, you know, I think in a way the you know, I'm I'm a more consistently funny writer now than I than I than I was, partly because I I'm so not troubled by the idea of wanting to be serious, mm. a, 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 as it were. Um, and you know, so I mean, um, and I mean, it's just, there's a number of things I could say about this, I guess. Um, 
I wrote this book about uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's film Stalker, you know, which of course is a very serious, serious film, which I loved so much. And I wrote about that film in a way that was, some people felt was really inappropriate because, you know, people revere, you know, they revere Tarkovsky in this sort of Saint Tolstoyevsky kind of way. And, you know, while writing that book, I, realized, I really, I realized reverence is just the most useless thing. It's just... And it leads to that sort of sense of ownership that people seem to have over certain artists and writers, which, which always troubles me slightly. Yeah. You know, you get these crowds where you think, well, no, we're the experts in this and no one else is allowed to write about it and certainly not write about it and be funny, for example. Oh, that's so, so exactly right. And yeah, so, I mean, one, I absolutely share your thing that you don't need to be, uh, uh, actually, in some way, although I rely on the work of experts to sort of inform my stuff, I think that, actually, I can bring insights to it which are maybe, to a, whatever the subject is, which are maybe have escaped the expert. But yeah, I really became convinced that reverence is... It's just useless as an investigative tool because you, you want to be, you want there to be some sort of inquiry going on, whereas reverence almost means mm. case closed, doesn't mm, it? You know, absolutely. there's no detective work to be done. Uh, but, you know, of course I want to be, uh, I want to be capable of admiring, you know, and the great thing about when you're admiring, that has almost uh, an interrogative thing built into it. Like, why do I admire this so much? Why is this having this effect, whereas, re yeah, reverence has got this religious thing where it's not for you to question. And it's exactly, it's got a presupposition to it, doesn't it? You, yeah. you, you start off already knowing the answer and no investigation can possibly be interesting if you already know the answer. So. Yes, it's almost like, you imagine that's why, um, you know, um, God, you know, the early, the early sort of astronomers were, were sort of burned or excommunicated because they were, you know, they were inquiring, you know. Anyway, and then similarly, uh, you know, I always love Nietzsche's, I never like, you know, I find I, I never liked earnestness when I, when I read it. And then I came across this line of Nietzsche's when he says, ah, earnestness, the sure sign of a slow mind. <laughs> so to be able to eliminate these, to, to think, yeah, you know, never be no reverence, no earnestness, but to be admiring, inquiring, and funny, all this sort of stuff, that then, yeah, so I think uh, stylistically, I've, what I've liked doing is this thing of maybe making a, a serious point and then immediately undercutting it with a joke or crucially a joke which then turns serious into another into another serious yeah. point because one doesn't want to just do endless stand-up where it's you know just you know uh set up punchline you know i like the punchline which then becomes the you know the prelude to a, a different kind of a counter punchline, if you like. And do, do you find that easy? I mean, again, you blur the boundaries, but do you find that easier when you're in kind of critic mode or critiquing mode rather than in pure novelist mode? Um, I think, in a way, what I'm realizing with another book, I've got, you know, I've got two books coming out next Oh, year, right. Okay. So well, happens. let's talk about both of them shortly. Yeah. And one of them is really funny. I think, in some ways, it really is my most consistently funny book because, for a very simple reason, what I do is I, it, it's, it's about this film which means a lot to English boys, really, of, of mine, possibly Toby's generation, we'll see. It's an action film, Where Eagles Dare. Oh, I, I, no, I don't, sorry. I mean, no, I, no. I know all about it, but I haven't Clive seen James it. admires it. Right, actually. OK. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the thing is, it's this, unlike Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is a work of high seriousness, this is a, a Second World War it's mission. sort of a great escape style. Exactly, but, right. it really is, with Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. And what that does, the fact that there's this story-driven thing, and the fact that I'm sort of summarizing it, that frees me to just make every sentence a stylistic sort of thing, because it hasn't got to do much, fun the functionality is taken care of already. And also every, it just means it can just be, you know, really more, more gags, really. Um, and yeah, that's been, so that's, I think, the, the less, what, and again, these things are so interesting. As the, the, what's interesting is, the way that in some ways you're not in control of how your writing life evolves. But I find that of the many aspects of writing that bore me, these days I just so, I get so bored by having to convey information. <laughs> so the fact that I've, all I'm doing is sort of summarizing a pre-existing thing, I, there is the, there's the information dimension to it, then I can just do these, you know, do these spins and 
you know... Invest it with personality, I guess. Yeah, which is the, that's right. That, the so that, that I'm, I'm finding... So, so you've got that, but is that coming out next year? That's the yeah. end of next year. That's the year. end of next year. And tell, tell us all about um, Gary Winogrand. Yeah. And, and it's coming out in the, in the summer, is that right? In the spring. In the yeah. spring. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've got this book coming out about Gary Winogrand, uh, who is, uh, as some of you will know, an American street photographer from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who, um, whose work I've loved for a, a long time. And, um, you know, one of the things about writing books is you get to find out about stuff. So for me, it was a way of, you know, immersing myself in the, uh, the to, how to to put it mildly, the voluminous output of, of Gary Winogrand. Um, and the book will, I mean, it will include, it's 100 pictures by Gary Winogrand, and each picture is accompanied by a 400-word essay by me. It's something I've, I'd wanted to do for a long time. I'd had this idea of the form of a, a book like that, and I could just never think of who the subject should be. When I just... I just loved that form, you know, picture on one side, text on the other. And there's a few great examples of that. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the book on Edward Hopper by that poet who died. Oh, um, stop Googling. <laughs> that's like that. And there's a book on Atjay by John Sarkowski. Anyway. And so is there, is there a narrative to the, the hundred photographs and your commentaries on them? That I presume there's a sort of a... Indeed, yeah. So, narrative yeah. So I've picked the photograph. So this is for the first time ever. I've been, I've learnt this thing of um, a visual, how to construct a narrative visually, and then also the the, the words tell the story of, of his of his life, and the his development as an artist, and also of course the times he he, he you know the times he's lived through. So that was uh, that was that, and I'm really happy with it because I was, I'm very conscious that a friend of mine when I was much younger she was writing a, a biography of Margaret Durer which she failed to finish partly because as she got deeper into it she just came to hate Margaret Durer more and more <laughs> and she was so fed up with Margaret Durer whereas at the end of this my appetite for Winogrand pictures was still un, un, unsated you know. Um, photography's very important to you, as, as far as I know, and you have, in, in fact, written a book about photography called The Ongoing Moments. And I, I remember when we spoke a while ago, you, you may correct me, but I, I seem to remember you saying that for you, photography was probably the most exciting contemporary art form, yeah. um, which struck me as particularly interesting in, you know, in, the, in the era of um, ubiquitous photography. Everyone has a phone, everyone takes photographs the whole time. What is it about photography, um, and particularly photography in our era, that you find so exciting? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if when... I mean, I, I would slightly retract what I said. Right, okay. uh, and I may have misremembered it as yeah, well, so apologies yeah. if, that's, if um, that's correct. I mean, I guess what I... It's... it. I mean, yeah, I should have grounded it more in my... I should have said something like, how could one not be uh, excited by photography when you're discovering so much about the great tradition of photography that I am at this moment. Right, okay. Uh, and, you know, so... Uh, but it's, it's so... I mean, uh, it's still so... It's so interesting what we're living through, this, this change in, you know, to digital, all this sort of stuff. And nobody has quite got to grips with it. But one thing that it is definitely doing, it's really imparting another level of magic to the pre-digital era of photography. And the most crucial thing for that, which has so changed, is that, you know, Win one of Winogrand said these brilliant photograph things about photographs. You know, he just always, you know, he just say these things, he was, you know, he's sort of a self-educated guy from the Bronx, and he'd just say these wonderful things. He says, you know, if you take your pictures in Arizona, your pictures are gonna look like Arizona, which I think is just so <laughs> profound. <laughs> And then he'd say, you know, it's one of his famous sort of lines, he'd say, you know, you know, why do I photograph? I find out, I photograph to find out what a thing looks like photographed. <laughs> and of course, that sense of discovery was such a, it remained mysterious at that, for people working at that time, right up until the dark room and often beyond the dark room, right up to the prints. Because you take a picture and... You know, Antonioni 
via Cortassa, constructed a whole film of this. You know, he takes a picture and there's, turns out there's a murder in it. But that delay between taking, that you took the picture back then and then you develop it and then, you know, you print it and, you know, all that. Now, of course, that, that magic, that crucial interval of uncertainty has disappeared. So you see people, you know, we, do you know this term we say in English about photographers chimping? I, I haven't. I haven't heard of chimping. Oh, you right. see them. You see the paparazzi chimping. You know, it's where they take the picture and then they're like this, right, right. looking at the. <laughs> so yeah, you see it instantly. You know what you what you've got. And anyway, I just think that the way that the change is so complete now that. So it's, is, it, is it sort of changed the narrative of the past photography in yes, a way? I, I think so. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, that's and Winogrand is so interesting because, as some of you will know. You know, this guy who said he photographed to find out what a thing looked like photographed, he went sort of so nuts that he, he gave up making exhibition prints of his photographs, which is okay, you know, he didn't need to exhibit. Then he met, gave up making work prints. Then he gave up making contact prints. Then he gave up even developing his pictures and just went kind of nuts of just <laughs> photographing everything all the time. And he ended up with something like, at the time of his death, something like a third of a million exposures that he that he had no idea what he'd photographed. And are there, are there still lots of them that are undeveloped? And oh, they've all been they've developed. They've all been developed yeah. and archived. And, yeah, and right. there's this great interest in late Winogrand, you know, the, the, the ultimate pharaoh's tomb, you know. But then it turns out everybody, every attempt to reassess late Winogrand is defeated by the sheer sort of unfocused <laughs> mass of it. You know, what, what was he doing? Why did he take six rolls of film just driving around Los Angeles, of, which is a difficult place to photograph anyway. You know, it's because this... he, he wants to see what, what it would look like. Well, except he didn't bother <laughs> looking what it would He just, you know, and he got an auto wind, which made it even worse. So instead of just going click, he, you know, he did, oh, another film. He just went, it's so interesting. I mean, his, his pathological uh, thing. And then he got, he became ill. Uh, the interval between him becoming ill and dying was so short just a matter of months, that he had no chance to sort of take stock. So it's just this massive unresolved question, which is a source of endless fascination. Um, I think it's, it's nearly time for some questions, but before yeah. we move on to that, I just wanted to quickly ask you about your move to the States and also mm. your teaching. You're an associate professor at the USC or, or visiting professor? Uh, I have, or, I'm writer-in-residence. Writer-in-residence. Writer in does, yeah. does that involve a fair amount of teaching as well then? Or? Uh, no, not, not, not right, really. Right. It involves some teaching. But, and uh, how, and it, had you taught before? or is this a, a little bit. A little in, bit. in American universities yeah. as visiting... Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, so yeah, I do that. And is that something you enjoy doing? Yeah, uh, because, um, you know, um, just again, looking at the age of, you know, the, I think that, that that age in one, I look back on my own life now, and, you know, what was the period of greatest intellectual development for me? Without question, between the ages of about 23 and sort of early 30s. And... So teaching these grad students who are that sort of age, who are so impassioned with the idea of becoming a writer and they're loving literature, they're reading a lot, you know, they're turning me on to new things. You know, this has been part of the thing, problems, I think, for Martin Amis, that his canon just became locked down at, at a certain point. Um, whereas, you know, so I feel that they're, in their reju you know, I, I, I just find it a rejuvenating thing, but that's partly because unlike American writers who they publish a slim book of short stories and they get a teaching gig immediately <laughs> at the age of 28, I only started doing it at the age of, in my 50s, by which time, you know, I was going there to teach them. They thought I was teaching them. What they didn't realize is that I was actually in an, in an entirely vampiric relationship to them, <laughs> wanting to just be injecting their... What 20 to 30-year-old, you know, enthusiasm and stuff into Which, into which authors are, are you currently teaching them then? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, all sorts, actually. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I, I teach my late, my passions. You know, Annie Dillard, for example, I was teaching. He, he, there's an epigraph from Annie Dillard in, in this book, isn't yeah, there? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, the, the value of, I think I'm just turning them on to books you know, they're all read, you know, they all read the latest, they all know about American fiction. So I've been 
getting them to read, you know, writers who they might not have come across because these writers are not straight down the line uh, fiction writers, novelists, or whatever. Um, great. Well, I think it's time for some questions. So uh, do you put your hands up. I can already see a hand there. This idea of what makes uh, spaces or places special is something I'm very interested in. And it's a question I make myself all the time. So I was wondering if you think that maybe another reason why some places become special is because they're like hard to approach. For example, Machu Picchu, would it be as special if it would be on the ground level, very easy to reach, you know? And yeah. I don't know if you've thought about this or if you see this as something that happens in different places you've seen that are special yeah, just because yeah. it's very hard to get there. Great, a superb point. And do you know, uh, I'm not going to Machu Picchu because I can't go. And I, uh, and that really, of course, that in a way that makes my, that's really stupid. I mean, it's really disappointing. But I reassure myself by thinking of the incredible headache I got when I went to Telluride in Colorado from the altitude. So I sort of think, well, great, at least I haven't got to go through all of that. Um, but you're, I mean, you've made, I mean, you've made a really great point. So another of these famous land art things um, by Robert Smithson, the spiral jetty, which is really difficult to get to up in northern Utah, I, at the end of my piece about that, I joke that, you know, actually, you know, if it was easier to get to, people probably wouldn't bother with it at all. I think there really is a, a thing of that. But crucially, that is always, that has always been built into the idea of the pilgrimage, hasn't it? I, with the Canterbury Tales, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the journey there that, that, that's important and is actually not just the prelude to the experience of the pilgrimage, but is actually, it's actually it. So I completely agree with you. And the truth is, I, obviously, I still feel it's just ridiculous that I'm not going to, to Machu Picchu. <laughs> um, but I do want to, I shouldn't boast, but I really, I would claim, I think I, when I went, was in, the first time I was in Telluride, I think I had one of the greatest headaches in the entire history of the world. Uh, so from the altitude, yeah. Thank you. And there's a, a yeah. hand there. Hi, um, I just have a question about the uh, sort of magic of a place. I tend to feel that there is some magic taken away when, for example, in the Colosseum in Rome or even in the Parthenon where it's surrounded by scaffolding. And I appreciate that without that, it would probably all fall down. But do you think there is, um, a potential magic that's being missed out on by seeing the rubble of the Colosseum or the rubble of the Parthenon? Or, um, or do you think it is necessary to sort of demystify these places by surrounding them with cranes mm -hmm. to keep them standing? Uh, again, I mean, these, these two questions go so perfectly together. And I, 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 my answer will be in two parts. I mean, so of course they, they need to be preserved. And of course, it just sucks when you turn up at these places uh, and you know you can't see them because they're surround they're being they're being restored or whatever. It's really disappointing. So it was wonderful for me to see, you know, these the greatest Roman ruins I've ever seen at Lept in Leptis Magna in Libya. Uh, I'm so glad I saw them. They're completely, you know, there are no hordes of uh, uh, visitors, um, you know. I went there on my own. It's great. The downside for the rest of you is, fuck knows when you're going to be able to go and go to Leptis Magna in Libya because there's not scaffolding there, but there are other problems. So I think this is a big, a good reminder. We're not immortal and not everywhere in the world is always, even though these sites have been there for thousands of years, you know, it's very, it's possible, it's, you know, these places might conceivably be it might not be possible to visit them again in, 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 in your lifetime. That's a pessimistic analysis. Anyway, so there's that. I think this thing of preserving is so... I, I've never experienced it as powerfully as when I visited uh, Orador sur Glan. Have you, do you know of that place? No, I don't. Um, Orador is where... Uh, it's a village in, uh, in the middle of France where uh, in um, the... I think it's in 1944. 
uh, the SS turned up and as a reprisal for resistance activities, they massacred everyone in the village. Um, I can't remember how many people. And I think it, was, it, was, it might have been a couple of thousand even, I think, or something yeah, like that. Was, yeah. In a really large number, everyone, uh, you know, uh, men, women, old, old, old people, kids, everybody just killed. And uh, they, the way that they memorialised that place was to leave it exactly as it was on that, on that day. So um, when I visited it, it in the 1990s, you've got these rusting bicycles rusting cars it's just as it was on that day you can you can get a glimpse of it because it's it's what it's how the very first episode of that series the world at war begins from the 1970s anyway it's a place of unbelievable power i mean as you can imagine you know there's a huge problem though uh the work of time and the elements means that you know the citron car or whatever is rusting away the whole place is just returning to the landscape so what do they what are they going to have to do to artificially preserve it or just let it kind of let the grass grow over it and fade it's really so it's you know your your question gets absolutely to the to the to the to the heart of this thing and god knows if they do decide to deserve to prop it up with scaffolding or whatever and on the day you visit, that really will be terribly uh, bad luck. But yeah, it's an issue all over, isn't it? And we see it replicated over and over. It's like, you know, it's, we keep, it's one of the things we in England keep coming up with, you know, oh, we're not going to give, give the, the, uh, the Elgin marbles back to Greece. And it's a good job we didn't because the pollution in Greece is so bad that if we let you people have them, they'd have been rotted away. <laughs> so, yeah, great. You've raised a, a really superb point, and I, which I hope I've sort of addressed. Thanks for answering. Thank you. Just, just over there. Yeah. Um, changing the theme slightly, I was wondering uh, when you were talking about photography, um, and I just thought whether old-fashioned photography, if there was more of an emphasis on capturing a moment, capturing a drama, mm -hmm. and that maybe in modern photography it is more about filters and editing and contrasting, and there's a different kind of drama that you get from a photo nowadays than when you look at, I don't know, work, um, I can't think of anyone right now, but I'm just thinking of some old-fashioned mm. British photographers who, who photographed like working-class people in Liverpool yeah. and how you got kind of real drama of everyday life. Mm. And I feel mm. like that's, that's a photography that's kind of dying now. What, what would you say about that? Do you think that's true? Oh, well, I'd, I've now got to give... Uh, having given, I think, quite good answers to the previous questions, I've got to give a really boring two-word answer to that. It depends. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's, and there are so many things that it depends upon. That it's rather... I mean, what I... What I, I, I mean, geez, if you think of... Uh, I mean, in a way, people can capture drama more now because just of the... Uh, in a sense, I mean, the still photograph is technologically potentially coming to an end because you can just let the film run and capture any kind of, you know, capture it all. You know, so whereas you could before have lost the, the vital moment because you happen to be facing the other way. But again, that means that those Cartier-Bresson images of the decisive moment have that power because, yes, it's, it's that moment. Anyway, the, I feel there are so many variables built into to this to this thing that I can't properly uh, properly address it now but I mean you know you see those Helen Levitt pictures of kids playing in the streets of, of New York and you know you think oh I don't know whether anyone's ever going to be able to capture that again partly because if they do you'll look at it and you'll think oh yeah Helen Levitt <laughs> he's he or she is doing a Helen Levitt you would think not such a good answer, but another good question. Thank you. Um, there's, a, there's a hand there. Um. I'm also changing a little bit the subject. It's more about your creative process. I've been looking for the zone for a very long time, and I finally got it in here. So mm. how did you do it? Like, I'm a very big fan of Tarkovsky, and I'm, ah. how was to write about it? Oh, it was such fun. Uh, for a very simple reason, in a way, um, I was contracted to write a book about tennis, and I hate having contracts to write books. 
because I just don't like that weight of obligation hanging over me, even though tennis was absolutely what I was most passionate about. And I was so interested in tennis, as I am now. But when it came to it, I just couldn't find a way to do it, partly because in the past, with everything I've written about, I found a formal equivalent some formal equivalent of the subject matter. So the jazz book was written in a jazz-like way, the photography book in a photo-like. I couldn't find a way of making the tennis book tennessy, if you see what I mean. And there was so, any kind of back-and-forth dialectic that you yeah, could Yeah, you know, I wanted to find something like that, but just couldn't, really. And then, so, of course, one of the things that can really make you depressed as a writer is being commissioned to write a book and not being able to do it. And then uh, they were, there was a, a screening of, of Tarkovsky's film Stalker, which I saw so much. And I just wrote a little uh, article for the newspaper about why I loved this film so much. And I just chanced in this article on a tone, a very light tone, a sort of jokey tone, which I liked so much. And then I thought, you know, I'm just gonna, what I'm going to do is just summarize the film um, scene by scene in this sort of jokey tone. And by doing that, uh, I really was, A, I was happy because I was working. I was doing, you know, instead of not being able to, you know, the worst thing as a writer is to be, you know, like riding a bike with the brakes on. You know, you're better off just doing anything else. So I was having, a, I was having fun in the afternoons, just summarizing this film for my own enjoyment, watching it more and more. And the more I watched it and summarized it, the more I was able to see technically how certain effects were achieved and was able to articulate to my own satisfaction why, uh, you know, what, how it was happening. But also, I became more and more conscious of its, how profound it was. And I found actually that really I couldn't do justice, that it was felt very natural. Just, you know, the, the story of the film is these three people who go to the forbidden zone on their way to the room where their deepest wish will come true. But as they make this literal journey, so they become progressively more mired in metaphysical and philosophical problems. So for me, it then meant I could just get into these digressions of, oh, well, what's my deepest wish? You know, and weirdly, by remain that, it was just a way of both addressing these sort of philosophical ideas, but always staying very... Uh, close to the film and it was just a, a source of joy I was just happy because I was writing it in a tone that made me happy you know so I'd be writing it you know and then you know I'd write a sentence and at the end of it sometimes I'd be laughing you know so you know really I'm the opposite of depressed <laughs> it was great then of course you know there's the thing you know shit nobody's going to publish this and then of course I think god I think maybe somebody will publish it and to, their, to cut a long story short, to their immense credit, my publishers, both in the US and the UK, when I handed in my book about tennis, which had become about a book about Tarkovsky, they could <laughs> so legally have said, this is not, you know, this, but they, they took it to their, we always have this idea that publishers are these money-grabbing, commercially-driven Philistine, you know, Things, but they, they really were, you know, I, you, I mean, it really was. I have to be very grateful to them that they, that they published it. And I am very grateful. Um, I think we've got time for, for maybe one more question. Lo que quiero preguntar es si esta fascinación o la repulsión que genera un lugar, visitar un lugar, tiene que ver algo con los colores del lugar, con los colores del paisaje o los colores de la vegetación. ¿Y cómo estos colores pueden cambiar con, con la luz del día o la noche? Y si eso tiene que ver un poco con las emociones que, que el visitante adquiere. So he's asking about whether your relationship with place um, is, is kind of related to how you emotionally engage with the landscape and the colors of the landscape and the way in which that, that changes with time and with the kind of the movement of the day and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, the thing, isn't it? There, there, you know, there are these places and they've existed for a very long time but I think yeah that that key thing it's uh um it's the interaction quite often that's one of the themes of this book I think with the um between the unchangingness of a place like the forbidden city and the very 
transience of an experience which is represented by by me and whatever it is that I, I I'm I, I, that that is happening there to me on on that particular day. Do you feel that's a reasonable response to your <laughs> question? I think I, yeah, I think that that's completely opposite to the entire book. It's about your it's it's very personal as it as it needs to be, and it's about your kind of personal engagement with these very timeless things mm. and how you you experience time and space that, that, you know, moves before you and goes beyond you, but it's about you being, as you were saying earlier, it's, it's about the moment. Phew, great. There you go. <laughs> thank you very much. For and I think um, on that note, um, thank you everyone for coming and thank you very much to Jeff Dyer. Oh, but thank you, Toby, really. Thank you all. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you so much. 